dancing and singing. They were full of celebration, and they had no idea that a brand new battle was beginning, even as they celebrated the end of the current season of war. The women started singing. Saul has struck down his thousands, they sang, and David his ten thousands. Well, that little lyric was the shot heard round Israel. Pride rose in Saul's heart. The people already love him, Saul thought. What else can David have except my kingdom too? And actually, Saul was right. God did plan to give the kingdom to David. And Saul was not ready to let go. And so that began a game of cat and mouse, if you will, in which Saul tried repeatedly to kill David, and David ran every place he could think of for refuge. First of all, he ran to Jonathan, Saul's son. He ran to Michael, Saul's daughter and his wife. He ran to Samuel, the prophet who had anointed him the next king of Israel. And then he ran to the tabernacle. And by this time, David was so desperate and so afraid that he was not thinking straight. And when he saw a servant of Saul lurking there at the tabernacle, he made a mistake. He lied to the high priest who gave him food and a weapon for his journey. Actually, Goliath's sword was the weapon that he gave him. And then David made another mistake. He took that food and that sword, and he kept running right to his enemies. Have you ever heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Perhaps that's what David had in mind. Since Saul was a common enemy, maybe Achish, king of Gath, would protect him. But he was dead wrong. You see, Gath was where Goliath, the giant, was from. That was his hometown. And who had killed Goliath? David had. And everyone in Gath recognized him as he came in carrying Goliath's sword. Now, that was not much of a plan, was it? No, he was acting erratically. He was acting foolishly. He was afraid and desperate. Well, when David's identity was discovered, 1 Samuel 21.11 records what King Achish's servants reported to the king. I have somehow gotten up here without my clicker, so you'll have to help me out up there. I apologize. But the first slide, 1 Samuel 21.11. Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Did you hear what the Philistines called David? You see, the Philistines knew what David maybe didn't believe yet and what Saul was never ready to accept. They called him the king of Israel. So here's the king of Israel no bodyguard, 
in the court of an enemy king. Uh-oh. And at this critical moment, the story takes an interesting turn. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Can you imagine the fierce warrior David who's killed the Goliath giant? Can you imagine him clawing at the doors with his fingernails and drooling all over himself? I almost can't picture that. But basically, David is pleading innocent by reason of insanity. And it worked. So then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? So Achish lets David go free. And David, it says, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. What do you think of David's actions here in 1 Samuel chapter 21? David didn't start this mess. That was Saul who tried to kill him. But now David has lied to the high priest, presented himself as a mercenary soldier to the enemies of Israel, and then pretended like an insane man to get out of that situation. Is he acting like the holy anointed next king of Israel should behave? Is he acting like he trusts in the God who has already delivered him on multiple occasions? Well, I would say not. But let's get a little personal for a moment. Have you ever behaved in a way that when you look back on it, you feel ashamed? Have you ever been in a mess that you either created or contributed to? Maybe you've left out significant information, cut corners, shared a story that ought to be kept private. Maybe you've pushed your kids too hard and now they're in tears. Maybe you struggle with escaping into distraction and then you can't believe how the time has gone by and you still haven't done your homework yet. Most of us, at one time or another, have found ourselves in a sticky situation that whether or not we started it, we played a part in creating it. And do you ever wonder at those times, will God help me when I'm desperate? even if I helped make this mess. Let's turn to Psalm 34. We're going to be parking in this psalm for quite a while this morning. So even though I'm going to have the verses on the screen, I think you'll enjoy following along with me in the Bible. Um, there's a Bible in the, the rack in front of you on the pew, or you may have brought your own. We're in Psalm 34. So why Psalm 34? In my Bible, right next to the chapter number, it has these words. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. This psalm contains David's reflections on the situation that we've just described. 
So if you are curious how David felt when he was putting Gath in his rearview mirror, this is a record of David's thoughts and feelings about the subject. And in case you noticed a change of names, Abimelech here appears to be another name for King Achish, but another possibility is that it could be a title for the kings of Gath, much like Pharaoh is a title for the kings of Egypt. So this is David's response to what's going on in his life at this time. And how is he feeling? Let's look at verse one together. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. After the desperation of 1 Samuel 21, this psalm has a very different tone. There's celebration, praise, adoration. His first words, I will bless the Lord. Do you hear some determination there? I will bless the Lord at all times. He's still on the run from King Saul. He's now hiding in a cave. But David says, I am determined to bless the Lord. And why? Why can he praise God in the middle of this mess? You see, David knows escaping Gath was not blind luck. And he doesn't even credit his escape to his quick thinking. No, he credits God himself. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. He might be hiding in a cave, but the only reason he's alive at all is because the Lord has helped him and he knows it. Do you hear a hint of humility there? David knows there's nothing in himself to boast about. He knows that he's done wrong and he will boast in the Lord. As we continue verse 2, I want you to notice the audience that David is speaking to. Let the humble hear and be glad, he writes. What does it mean to be humble? I want you to try these words on for size. Are you poor, needy, weak, or afflicted? How about completely aware of your own failures? then you're included in this group because that's what humble means. Strong's Concordance puts it this way, depressed in mind or circumstance. And this is the group of people that David is instructing to be glad. Let the humble hear and be glad. Why should I be glad when I'm depressed in mind or circumstance, David? Because if I've recognized that there's nothing good to boast about in me, then I'm ready to boast in the Lord. I can join in magnifying God with my praise. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Well, friends, I hope that introduction to the psalm gets your attention because it sure isn't the natural response when we're feeling depressed in mind or circumstance. And thankfully, David doesn't leave us here. He's got more to say. 
Following the Jewish way of thinking, David is going to emphasize his main idea by repeating it three times. There's space throughout the, the remainder of the psalm. But look here. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 4. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 6. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 17. Do you see the pattern there? Three repetitions spaced throughout the rest of the psalm, and they all point to this same pattern. Seek, hear, deliver. I seek, and God hears, and God delivers. But before we get too excited, I want to pause a moment. You see, when I see a word like righteous, I was in, in those slides, when the righteous cry for help, when I see a word like that, I get a little worried because, well, I'm not righteous, am I? How do I qualify for righteousness? <laughs> Maybe this promise isn't really for me. But it is. I want you to notice what David called himself in that second verse there. This poor man cried. In Hebrew, that word poor indicates the wretched, the afflicted, the needy, the humble. This is a psalm written by the humble and for the humble. And that, hopefully, is all of us. We all need to be in that place. God does hear and save the righteous, but he hears and he saves the humble too. And do you see how closely related those patterns are in those verses? It gives me the hint that actually the righteous are the humble and that humility is a prerequisite for righteousness. So whether you feel more comfortable calling yourself one of the righteous or one of the humble, this promise is definitely for you. We asked a question at the beginning, will God help me when I'm desperate, even if I created this mess? And here's the answer. When you seek him, he saves. What follows are two incredible promises. First, verse 5, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Are you in a desperate spot? Seek him, and your face will sparkle. Next verse, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. What a promise that is. And as we dig into it a little bit this morning, it gets even sweeter still. You see, in the Old Testament, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's a little bit of an enigmatic character. Um, it's presented in a deliberately ambiguous way. So I'll explain. Do you remember the story of Hagar? She was the servant to Sarah that Sarah arranged to get pregnant on her behalf since, she, since Sarah was unable to have children. Well, let's talk about a mess, right? 
that's a messy situation. And sure enough, after Hagar conceived, she started to contribute to this mess with an attitude, and the two women argued, and Hagar ran away into the wilderness. As she's wandering there in the wilderness, this character, the angel of the Lord, finds her. And they have a conversation. And four times during their conversation, the Bible refers to this individual as the angel of the Lord. But then, as they're wrapping up their conversation, Hagar gives this same individual a name. And she calls him the God who sees me. And the angel doesn't object at all. And over and over throughout the Old Testament, we see this same ambiguous thing going on. The angel of the Lord shows up, and someone calls him God. When he showed up to Moses in the fiery bush, he actually gave himself a name. He said, I am that I am. See, the angel of the Lord is not just any messenger from heaven. It is the Lord in a form that can interact personally with humans. So let's return to this promise. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Can you imagine God himself setting up a perimeter watch around your yard and camping out there? That's what this verse is telling us he does. And that's incredible. But again, who is this promise for? Is it for me? And is it for you? You'll notice in the verse it says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Is that those who are afraid of him? No. See, this word fear has more than one meaning. It can mean scared but it also has the sense of reverence and awe and respect. Let's consider for a moment. God's presence is so bright and so holy that humans can't look on him and live, right? That's what he told Moses. But yet, he veils himself in order to help them like he helped Hagar personally, in order to call them to great tasks like he did for Moses. Does that give you a sense of awe about who our God is? It does for me. You see, when we are seeking the Lord, when we're looking at him, and we're getting to know who he is and what he's like, reverence is not far behind. They go together. And so if you are seeking the Lord, this promise is for you. So will God help you when you're desperate? Yes. If you seek him, if you reverence him, he'll set up that perimeter around your yard and camp out with you in person. When you seek him, he saves. In verse 8, David has another invitation for us, the humble. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David pleads with us, having himself experienced God's goodness, he now wants us to give it a try. 
You've got to give this a try. The results will speak for themselves. If you only give him a chance, you'll discover that God is really, truly good. Here's a vital fact about God's goodness. God is good to people, right? That's what we've been talking about. God delivered David from all his fears. He saved him out of all his troubles. He does good things for people. But there's more than that. God is good in himself, in his character. He's kind and he's ethical and he is good through and through. And I think this is really important for us to understand about God because in this wicked world, it's not that way. People are good for not so good reasons. <laughs> we behave well so that we'll have a good reputation. We use kindness to manipulate. Abusers use gifts and affirmation to groom their victims. Goodness isn't good in our world, but when it comes to God, it's not that way. When we try God, we find he is good through and through, right down to the core. So when you seek him, he saves. He can't help it. His good character demands it. Let's check out the next promise together. God's good character also inspires good gifts to those who seek him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Sometimes I confess I'm tempted to think that the Christian life is hard. There's self-denial and sacrifice and dying to yourself every day, and this can seem hard. But what is it that I give up when I'm dying to myself? This verse tells me that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. All that I'm giving up isn't good for me anyway. It's that which will hurt me. And what's really good, God will provide. All the things I need and a fair amount besides. And notice with me who does suffer want and hunger. The lions, those who are fierce, the young hunting lions, the ones who go after what they want with all they've got, you would think they'd be well-fed, but they're not. They're the ones who suffer want and hunger, while those who humble themselves are the ones who do not lack. We aren't saved when we watch out for ourselves. No, no. When we seek him, he saves. Friends, we have a lot to learn because the ways of our world and the currents in our culture have it backwards. And David knows it. He so far has shared his testimony with us of how God delivered him. He's invited us to join him in praising God and invited us to seek God and taste that he's good. He's given us some amazing promises, and he's emphasized that when we seek the Lord, the Lord saves. But now David transitions from a testimony to some teaching, some instruction. He knows that we have something to learn. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. 
Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Even the saints have more to learn about what it means to be righteous, what it means to fear the Lord. And like children, we need to be humble and teachable. We need to enter the classroom with our notebook and our pencil, ready to take notes, ready to learn. I take a lot of comfort in this idea that saints aren't perfect and the righteous aren't finished and that seeking the Lord is just the beginning. There's a journey that we go on in learning, learning what it means to fear the Lord. I'm a teacher. I'm at TCAS this year, Tri-City Adventist School. Um, and right now, my ninth and 10th graders are working on research essays. And I can tell you that as a teacher, I do not expect the first draft of those essays to be perfect. They're going to have mistakes in logic. They're going to be disorganized. They're going to have evidence that proves somebody else's point. And that's just the way it is. It's just normal and expected. And then by the time we get around to the second draft, they're still going to have quotations that they forgot to cite. And they're going to have awkward sentences and periods and commas that are out of place. And that's normal. I expect it. Because learning takes time. And learning involves making mistakes. And learning happens under the tutelage of a patient, knowledgeable teacher. And I am not talking about myself. So, who's ready? Who wants to join this class? We'll call it Fear of the Lord 101. The professor walks in and he's got a question to grab our attention. He says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Would any one of you turn down an extra five years of life as long as they were healthy, strong, full of good years? I don't think anyone would turn that down. So the professor has our attention now. Yes, we want that, we say. Well, good. We're in the right place. He turns to the whiteboard and he says, take some notes. Here's the fear of the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Was that what you were expecting? Hmm, it wasn't quite what I was expecting. I mean, something about reverence or awe or God's majesty maybe, but here it is. Reverence for the Lord is a lot more practical than it sounds. I fear the Lord when I watch my tongue, when I won't repeat something unkind, when I refuse to tell a lie. I fear the Lord when I turn away from evil, when, with humility, I confess that I know I've done wrong. That's fearing the Lord. I fear the Lord when, instead of doing the evil I used to do, I replace it with good. And I fear the Lord when I seek peace in my relationships with God and other people. When I pursue peace. That word pursuit makes me think of my dog Zoe when she's chasing a squirrel. All I see is her white, fluffy backside disappearing into the underbrush. She's got her tail up and her paws out and she's just gone in a flash. 
She will not listen. She will not come back when she's in pursuit of a squirrel. Is that how we are when it comes to pursuing peace? Do I pursue my relationship with God that way, making sure there's nothing between me and him? Do I pursue peace with other people that way, making sure there's nothing more important than valuing them as children of God? Well, that's what the fear of the Lord looks like. So I know that I have a fair amount to learn about the fear of the Lord. I haven't mastered the art of turning away from evil. It comes out too often in impatience and irritation and distraction. And maybe you see some areas where you can improve. Well, remember, this is the hymn for the humble. God knows his saints have learning to do, and he is ready for as many drafts of that essay as it takes. So as we've been discussing this morning, when we seek him, he will save. He'll save us over and over and over again. But in addition to saving us, he wants to teach us too. Because has he really saved us from our mess if we're going to go back out and create the same mess again? When we seek him, he saves us and he teaches us. Now the author paints a picture of two choices in front of us. Because, friends, we do not have to seek him. We can make another choice. So the author wants us to be aware of the consequences of our choices. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So which group would you like to join? The first one, right? I love the language in that line. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Earlier we saw that the righteous are the ones who are looking at him. So we're looking at him and he's looking at us and that's eye contact. That's a shared glance. And I love to think about that precious thought. And his ears are toward their cry. He's leaning to hear us when we call for him. But I don't love to think about the second line. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Sadly, there are those who would prefer to live without God's attention. John writes that this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Those who prefer to live in the dark don't want God's eyes on them, and they don't want his ears on listening to them, and they have chosen not to cry out to God. They're still the young lions. They're fierce and they're fighting. But by rejecting God, they're rejecting life too. And the psalmist makes clear that when the Lord turns his face against them, even their memory is cut off. But friends, this does not have to be anyone's destiny. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We're back to that language of humility. 
The word crushed here is a word picture. It literally means ground to dust, powder. Figuratively, it means contrite or sorry. When our way hasn't worked out, when being a lion hasn't panned out for us, when we're crushed and broken, the Lord is near and he saves. Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was crushed so that when we feel crushed, he can save us. The last stanza is worth the wait. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Friends, have you found it true that the righteous have many afflictions? Has that been true in your life? What about the second part, that the Lord delivers out of them all? I'm glad to hear some amens. Praise the Lord for those. But with these sweeping promises, it can be easy for the skeptic here among us to be concerned. Really? When we seek him, he saves us from all our troubles, all our fears. How can this be? Because I'm still experiencing trouble. Well, first of all, deliverance is not equal to exemption. None of us are exempt from trouble in this wicked world. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We will all have them. And Bible writers tell us that we should expect trials. We should expect affliction and persecution just like it happened to Jesus. But deliverance is real. And it is coming. It may look different than we had in mind. God's promised deliverance from these afflictions may look different than what we would like. He may wait while we learn what he's wanting us to teach us. There are purposes for our afflictions. He may deliver us from one affliction just in time to allow another one to test us. He may take us through many hardships all at once before he brings us out on the other side of our suffering. But... He will be with us in all of it, and he will deliver us in his perfect timing and in his perfect way. The second half of that verse, um, the second verse there on that slide says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. In the context of this psalm, that he refers to the righteous. He keeps all of the bones of the righteous. Whatever the afflictions the righteous man is going through, God doesn't allow him to go through a breaking, soul-crushing kind of affliction. Even in our afflictions, he protects us. This is the way the Apostle Paul writes it. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. The righteous do experience many afflictions, but even in those afflictions, God is saving them. But there's another layer to these two verses here. In the 19th chapter of John, 
John tells us that at the cross, the Roman soldiers were ready to break Christ's legs as he hung there on the cross. But when they saw that he had already died, they stopped. They didn't break his legs. And then John quotes this exact verse. He says that these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. You see, John was trying to prove a point. He was trying to prove that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And the Jews knew that the Passover lamb, its bones were not to be broken. That was part of the Jewish law. And so when John quotes this verse, he's giving the Jews additional proof that this is the Passover lamb. This is the Messiah who died to save us from our sins. So these verses here in Psalm 34, in general, they describe righteous men. But in specific, they point us to the righteous man, Jesus. So let's take another look. Many are the afflictions of the righteous man. Jesus did have many afflictions. Isaiah says he was oppressed and afflicted. And yes, Jesus was delivered from all of them. He was resurrected in glory. And despite many afflictions, Jesus never experienced a breaking affliction. He lived the perfect life, and he died the perfect sacrifice. Literally and figuratively, God kept all of his bones. The psalm ends with one final contrast. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, each and every one of the humble are redeemed. If you admit your need, Confess your wrong. Seek him. Run to him for refuge. You will never be condemned. When you seek him, he saves, even if you helped create the mess. So how do we apply this precious truth? Recently, I was in a mess. I was really struggling to wake up in the morning and spend time with God like I know I should and like I want to. And some of the factors were outside of my control and a fair few of them were mistakes. And I was cranky without that time with God. But I sought him and he saved me, he helped me. He started waking me up well before my alarm. And you know, I shared that story with a friend, and she prayed a similar prayer, and the Lord started waking her up early, too. I know another woman who was in a mess. She was in the middle of a difficult divorce, and it resulted in being homeless. She was living in her car for a while. And she sought the Lord. She really prayed, and he saved her in a miraculous way. He provided a rental home for her, and the rent was already paid for the first six months. 
Yeah, praise the Lord. Are you in a mess? If so, turn to the Lord in prayer. If you helped create the mess, humbly tell him what you've done wrong. Tell him, I want to depart from evil. Teach me the good that I should do. And then listen, because the Lord will teach you how to fear him in that situation. If you've lied, you may need to tell the truth. To pursue peace, you may need to make a genuine apology. You may need to own your wrong and offer to make it right. If your situation is particularly sticky, you may need to humbly seek wise counsel to know which direction to go. But whatever the wrong, getting real and getting humble with God is the very first step. When you seek him, he saves.